Welcome to the Fine Line Podcast. I'm Emily Gold. And I'm Liz Willette Daniels. As longtime veterans of restaurants and the wine importing and distribution business, we wanted to learn how the people we admire balance their love of food and wine with their mental and physical health. It's not always an easy journey. Mm-mm. If you are liking this podcast, please do rate, review, and subscribe. And please stay tuned after this episode for a few minutes of mindfulness with Kathy Hoya from A Balanced Glass. Enjoy. Dr. Todd Dorfman is the founder, CEO, and medical director of Sedalian Health, which he opened in 2002 in Boulder, Colorado, balancing a private practice with his role as an emergency room doctor. From 2001 to 2019, he was the medical director of the Boulder Community Hospital Emergency Medical Services and is currently in charge of Boulder's Boulder County's COVID-19 response. In addition, Dr. Dorfman consults for legal practices, biotech companies, and TV shows. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Dorfman. I am thrilled to be back. Thanks, Liz and Emily. It was fun the first time, and (laughs) my patients loved it, so hopefully we'll do it again. Well, obviously, we loved it since you're our first guest to come back for a second show. Oh, thank you. Our first twofer. (laughs) Thank you. So you and I were having a conversation a little while ago about uh, a bit that you used to do in your residency called Dogma versus Data. So tell us about the origin of what we're about to go through. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting. Um, so basically, dogma um, is sort of uh, in medical parlay or medical lingo. It's sort of what's just passed down through the ages. And uh, we have professors and some of the professors um, trained years and years ago, and they would say, you must do this or you must give this dose of medicine. You must do something one way or the other. Um, and being somewhat of a cynical guy, I decided to start looking all these things up when I was in residency. So I put together um, a talk, which became kind of a, um, a, a tongue-in-cheek kind of thing, but it was called Dogma versus Data, and we would call out each uh, professor who gave us the dogma, and we would uh, basically, I would show them the literature and show them what, you know, what all the uh, recent science and evidence says, and we'd be like, okay, we should probably change practice. So it really worked well, and it was fun. And I'm sure they loved that. <laughs> they loved it. Yeah. Uh, they would just laugh and laugh. And um, the 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 interesting thing, though, I think, was uh, you know we were talking a little bit earlier with social media. Now there's so much dogma and so much myth and so much nonsense, and it's hard to kind of weigh through everything. So I think um, it's really important in a lot of aspects of health, nutrition, really all aspects of medicine to kind of sift through what is science based, what is evidence based, what makes sense, and what is just you know, uh, hearsay, essentially. Well, let's launch into the f- most controversial <laughs> topic. And if if talking about vaccines is not something you want to hear, you can bleep through this part because we will talk a lot about vitamins, probiotics, other things. But right. so uh, Boulder County, I was proud to read the other day, is I think 80% one shot and 75% both shots. So we're in a good place. Yes. If- if you're pro-vax the way I am. Um, But I was telling Dr. Dorfman a few minutes ago that I was on my way here and talking to a winemaker friend, very liberal, and I was surprised to hear that he was concerned about his 12-year-old getting the shot because he's pre-reproductive age. So let's launch into all these different things that we're hearing about the vaccine Reproductive has been a big issue for people. I have heard nothing that really confirms that, but I'd love to hear what you have to say, because that is one of the major dogmas out there, I think. Yeah, I I, I totally agree. And um, as I was mentioning earlier, Liz, one of my wife's friends called and said, you know, she's not going to vaccinate her daughter, who's now eligible. I believe she's in in her uh, teens also um, for the same reason. And um, it's uh, quite frankly, um, there's no evidence and there's no science to support the fact that this vaccine um, will affect fertility. Now, one could certainly say, well, we don't know. It hasn't been out long enough. Sure. Uh, we're giving it to uh, children who have not, you know, developed into a fertile age, et cetera. Um, 
But having said that, the, the way the vaccine works, the way the messenger RNA vaccine works or the way the Johnson & Johnson type uh, work, um, it really doesn't have anything to do with uh, the DNA of the cells. It doesn't have anything to do with, um, as far as we can tell, anything reproductive, frankly. Uh, furthermore, it's highly recommended to give to pregnant women, um, and it confers antibodies the first several months to the baby, which is an important um, thing. Um, um, and uh, it's been shown to be incredibly safe in, in, in that population. So those are that's a developing fetus, essentially. So um, I don't have any evidence, clearly, because we haven't had it long enough, but I can tell you that no evidence exists to say you should not give it to someone because of fertility issues. Furthermore, you have to consider the other side of the coin, which is if you get COVID, right. About 30% of people are getting some sort of long COVID type symptom. And whether that's, uh, you know, uh, chronic headaches or fatigue or gastrointestinal symptoms. So uh, that does exist. Now, again, less likely in younger people to get long COVID, but it still exists even in uh, uh, childhood age groups. I have a friend who got a, gosh, January maybe, and she still has a bad cough. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. Yep. It could yeah. affect the lungs long term. There's yeah. no doubt. So, so to me, it's it's like everything in life. It's sort of a, a risk benefit analysis, yeah. and I, and and I would, you know, in in my book, the benefit and safety of these vaccines is superb. Yeah. So just a little bit more about um about how the vaccines don't impact your DNA. I had one person tell me that she and her whole family um saved some like took stem cell samples for in case they get sick later on because they believe that will be a cure and that they don't want to get vaccinated they generally are pro-vaccine in theory but they don't want to get vaccinated because they're afraid that later when they need their stem cells the cells in their body will be different hmm. um, because of the vaccine yeah well that's interesting <laughs> um I guess I, the first thing I would say out of the blocks is then maybe they should just get the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is not a messenger RNA type vaccine. And it is um, essentially exactly the same in terms of design as 80 gazillion other vaccines that you know we've given to people uh, over generations. Um, so you can avoid that questionable controversy. Um, a little bit about the uh, messenger RNA vaccine. So we're talking about Pfizer and Moderna. I think one of the things that people have to realize is that the uh, messenger RNA technology has been around for years yeah. and years and years. This is not a new technology. And we've been using it inside of laboratories and we've been using and testing messenger RNA technology. The thing that has made it special is that for the first time, we were able to actually get it inside the cells. Now it goes in the cells in what's called the cytoplasm. It does not go into the nucleus of the cells where DNA lives, okay? So all that the messenger RNA is, it's really just a message to create a type of protein and it creates the spike proteins on the coronavirus. So it's just creating a part of the protein so that your immune system can then react to it and develop an army against the spike protein. So it doesn't um, alter DNA. It's not even in the same place that the DNA exists. Um, and it um, really is doing almost exactly the same thing as the traditional types of vaccines, where we give a part of the, the virus, so we call it attenuated, so it can't replicate and cause problems. But maybe we give some cell wall of the virus. In this case, we give some of the spike protein and your immune system reacts. That's how Johnson & Johnson works. This is sort of one step away from that where we don't give the actual virus spike protein. We give the messenger RNA that creates the virus spike protein. So it's really one step away in yeah. a very similar vaccine process. It's miraculous. I yeah. mean, I, I think also a lot of people are saying, well, I don't want to take something that was put into emergency approval or whatever right, the that term is. It was rushed. That. The FDA approval right. was rushed. Sure. But we're about at the point where it moves out of emergency approval into permanent approval. If I, I'm, I'm not using the right terms. But. Yeah, emergency uh, use authorizations. Um, so 
you know, maybe that's a point, but let me tell you, around the world, um, they have um, equivalent FDAs, right? So the, the British, whatever it's called, FDA, right. the, you know, the, uh, France has one, you know, Germany, et cetera. Uh, the British system, they approved actually the Pfizer and, and Moderna um, right before we did like within a week or something. They work completely differently. They actually obtain data from the company all along the trial period. Interesting. So they've been evaluated. They've had much longer time to evaluate it. The U.S. FDA kind of wants a whole package presented to them. So do the tests, do whatever, do the studies, and then give us a package and we'll assess it. Whereas the U.K. was actually been assessing it throughout the study length and study time. So they've had scientists looking at this. The same with other European countries. So frankly, um, I think it has been really well studied. Great. That's great to know. And now we've given it to, you know, I don't know, I don't know how many millions of people and the, the, the side effect profile is, is minuscule. Here's the thing. How many people have died from this versus right. the very minuscule amount that have had a side effect from right. it's just like it to me as a rational human being. You mean right. how many people have died from COVID versus from COVID. Yeah. Thank you. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. It just, yeah. it makes no sense that you would think one would be worse than the other, but again, that um, is right. I and then going back to the RMA, it or frankly, really more Johnson and Johnson, I would say, mm -hmm. isn't that exactly what homeopathy is? Giving yourself a dose of whatever ails you to create an immune response and cure the issue. So, so really, I mean, a lot of these, a lot of the people that I think are anti-vax are the same people that are like because it's left wing and right wing. I mean, you've got far right. But then I have a lot of hippie friends who yep. are super anti-vax. Sure, sure. So I guess that's kind of incongruous to me that they're super into homeopathy and think like, oh, that's a natural remedy, but a vaccine is not. Right. I mean, the main difference um, in what you're talking about, Liz, is really the amount of you know, so homeopathy is theoretically, you know, a minuscule amounts of whatever virus or I, I know they make uh, homeopathic remedies for flu, for example, and they get it from ducks and different things. And but the truth is, um, you're right in the in the big picture sense, if you really step back and you gave a big enough dose of the same thing, yes, you, you form antibodies to it, just like you form antibodies to a bee sting, just like you form antibodies right. to any anything else that's introduced, any protein that gets put in your body that's, quote, foreign to your body, generally we form antibodies to it. So what about people who have had COVID and now believe that they don't need to get vaccinated because they already have antibodies? Is that a good reason? It's, it's partially a good reason, Emily, except for the study that just came out a few days ago, which said if you have had COVID and you get only one um, of the either Pfizer or Moderna, this is a study, this was an Israeli study, um, and you get only one shot, then you have incredibly, incredibly robust antibodies. So um, I'm recommending that even if people were, uh, did have the disease, that they get at least one vaccine. And the reason for that is um, you can have really mild cases of the disease and maybe you won't have good enough antibodies. So like think about um, a common disease that works like that is, is like a childhood thing like mono, mononucleosis. Most people are told, okay, you can only get mono once, mm -hmm. right? Well, a ton of people get mono twice. And it's usually because the first exposure wasn't very significant and the second exposure was far enough away where your immune system wasn't so sharp. So I do recommend for anyone who asks me that if, even if you've had it, you get one, one shot, either the Johnson & Johnson or one, one of the Moderna and Pfizer. In France, Pfizer. people that have had it only get one shot, actually. Whereas here, that's not... I mean. I don't know. My husband and my oldest son got it, and they also got both doses. Right, right. So, I mean, you can get both doses, but I think this study that just came out is pretty clear that one shot is really good. Okay. So you can theoretically save a bunch of vaccine and get this vaccine. Because, you know, right now, who are the, you have to think, who are the unvaccinated? The unvaccinated are either people who are not eligible to get it, so mostly children, or people who don't choose to get it, like people in the U.S., 
and we're shipping back thousands of vaccines and we're wasting tons of vaccines or the people who don't have access to it. Right. So who would die for those extra vaccines? Who would die for those yeah. extra vaccines? So I think, you know, um, it, it, given the choice, I think the more people we can vaccinate, the faster we can vaccinate these things like, uh, and I can explain why, but the things like Delta variant and Delta plus and Lambda and Epsilon and all the other variants that are coming down the pipe, those are going to go away very quickly if we can create herd immunity. So let's talk about Delta because it's certainly, I'm having my nephew over tonight for dinner Mm -hmm. and my 11 year old isn't vaccinated yet. And he said, you know, are you sure you still want to do dinner? And I'm like, yes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, I'm not, so I have several questions. Sure. I know we were lucky when my son and my husband got it. They had very mild cases. My son was literally sick one day and he has Lyme. So he does have Mm -hmm. some immunocompromisation, if mm-hmm. that's a word. Yeah. Um, so I'm not saying I'm not worried about my 11-year-old getting it, but I guess here are my questions. Is it true that Delta is worse, and especially in kids? I feel like, I guess my, I know hospitalizations have gone up with children with Delta, but how much of that data comes from maybe areas with higher comorbidity rates or things. I mean, I I guess I'm wondering how much that data is skewed. Sure. Not skewed, but just doesn't show the fine print. Yeah. Well, so you raise a a really good point. Let me um, remember, um, I don't know, a few weeks ago, there were like 400,000 people in India dying from Delta or, you know, getting Delta and all this stuff. And maybe last week there's like 40,000 or so. Well, here's what's going on. Um, When you vaccinate a population, okay, we went after very specifically the most vulnerable people, right? People who had, um, you know, first it was healthcare workers with lots of exposure. And then it was things like, um, you know, elderly population, uh, certain um, uh, health uh, uh, risk factors, heart, lung disease, et cetera. So we've kind of cherry picked, if you will, people that will get the sickest from any of the COVID variants, okay? Okay. So those people are vaccinated. So now if you look at the vaccinated population and you look at Delta virus, only about 0.3 to 0.5%. So 99.5 of vaccinated people who get Delta don't ever show up at a doctor's office, a hospital, or certainly don't die. And let's be honest, we don't really care if you get positive for it, like you said, and your son is sick for a day, who cares? Right. We just don't want your son to have a long-term problem or die, right? So what you have now, the people getting Delta are a much healthier populace, right? Okay, interesting. You, ha- you have kids, you have adults that don't have health problems, you know, whatever. Um, so to me, you can sort of see this trend. It went, it spiked in India, it popped back down. It's spiking now in Florida, but it's kind of like Florida's winter, right? It's 9,000 degrees there. Everyone's indoors. Huh. There's air conditioning. It's dry, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah, but the truth of the matter is, Delta is probably almost, well, let me, um, there's a term called the R naught, okay? And that is a term that really has to deal with how infectious is a disease. So let me give you an example. The original variant of, of COVID that came out, we'll call it the alpha, okay, had an R naught of like two to three. That means that if I had it, and you two guys, and I was in a room of, let's say, 10 people, and everyone is susceptible to COVID, no one had vaccines, two of those 10 people, maybe three, would get it from me. Got it. Okay. Okay. This is a big deal because watch how the numbers work. Now, chicken pox, incredibly, incredibly, incredibly infectious, has an R naught of about 10. Okay. But the Delta variant has an R naught of somewhere between like six and eight. So watch the numbers. If I, if the R naught is only three, I can expose three people and then three more and three more. That's nine people have been exposed from my exposure. If the R naught is six, six times six times six is 214 or something. 
So instead of getting like 27 people exposed with an R naught of three, I'm exposing 214 mm -hmm. with such a more infectious variant, okay? But there's a big difference between infectious and how, uh, what we call virulent or how bad the disease is. So people are getting very mild cases of Delta and especially if you're vaccinated. So even though it's easier to catch, it's not nearly as dangerous, especially in vaccination. So can we as vaccinated people carry it in our nose? That's what I've heard, yeah. You can, but see, that that's another thing that people, um, it's another point to get vaccinated because, okay, there's a difference between types of antibodies. There's something called neutralizing antibodies and sterilizing antibodies. Neutralizing antibodies stop the spread of the infection is stopped from so that you don't get sick if it's in your nose. Mm. Sterilizing antibodies blast those virus in your nose so you can't even carry it, basically. Mm. That's the difference. So some people actually eradicate it and don't can't carry it if they're vaccinated. But even the people that do that don't get sick, the likelihood that they're going to spread is exceedingly low because how do you spread viruses? You cough and you sneeze and you hack on people and you're in a right so if you're not actually sick you don't have what's called a very high viral load interesting so you're not just splattering all over people virus because you're all standing in a room coughing on each other right <laughs> it's a bunch of people who aren't sick who may carry it in their nose but the, the risk of spreading it's much less likely that's another reason to get vaccinated so it sounds like there are a couple other variants on the horizon yes are these what should we know about these? Like, what are they well, called? And yeah, sure. Well, it's in, it's interesting because, you know, we've gone to this Greek alphabet now so that I believe this was a political maneuver to, because, <laughs> it, you know, now it says, um, so the first one was, you know, the Chinese variant, right? Okay, that was politically incorrect. So in the second <laughs> one, now it's the uh, Delta variant first noticed in India. So that's how they word it. So, this, you know, whatever you want to call it, I don't care. The point is none of the variants so far, there's a Delta, there's a Delta Plus, there's a Lambda, there's an Epsilon they're starting to talk about. They come from all over the world. You can't blame the country yeah, they came we from. Can now discriminate <laughs> right? You can't. You cannot blame the country. <laughs> no. You just so anyway. But I think the point is, um, we don't have any evidence that any of these coming out are uh, so far are not susceptible to our vaccinations. Okay? okay, everything. Now there are some differences. Like the Delta variant happens to be more susceptible to Moderna than Pfizer right now. Fine. But the truth is, no matter which vaccine you got, it's almost. It's almost a zero chance, very close to zero, that you as a vaccinated, healthy person will end up sicker in the hospital. What about people who uh, seem to be just deciding not to get vaccinated and waiting for this to go away? <coughs> Bad plan in my book. <laughs> I mean, I think, look, life is a risk benefit analysis. You know, so soon we'll probably talk about, you know, moderation of wine, maybe, and different things. And, but I'm not it, sure it, what that is. Yeah. <laughs> Natural wine. We'll <laughs> I think more importantly, though, um, you know, if you yes, it could it could be like any other virus. There are people who don't like to get vaccinated from the flu and they get the flu and when they get it, they're pretty sick and that's fine. The problem with this particular disease is sort of twofold to me. Um, one if by not vaccinating, that's a personal decision, of course, and, and I agree with people being able to make their own decisions, but you do risk, if you get it, about a 30% chance of having chronic symptoms, and I think that's a really high rate, and I think it's a really bad plan off the out of the blocks to not get vaccinated. You do not want to have let's say you're a bolder athlete and now you're breathing, you can't breathe well for maybe the rest of your life, maybe just the next year, who knows? Um, so that those are some issues. Then the, the second reason to get um, vaccinated is, like I said, to stop the spread of the disease because we do have populations now like school kids that aren't eligible. So it would be kind of nice to not have to worry about those kids and not have to have them wear masks and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Um, so I, I do think there's a couple of reasons to get vaccinated, but it's just a bad plan in my eyes because you're risking a potential chronic illness for sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I'd also like to not pay taxes and right. do things like that, but it's yeah. my duty as a citizen to enjoy 
roads and other things that taxes pay for. Right. So yes, free freedom of choice is an important thing, but there's also a civic duty. I think that people need to really consider. Yeah, th- this is super controversial because right now yeah. in France, for example, in a right. socialized medical system, you they are making it absolutely it's, impossible for you to live your life if you're not yeah. vaccinated. Yeah. But again, they control that, right? Everyone has a vaccine. We call it a vaccine passport or whatever you want to call it. But it's, since it's socialized, everyone has a code. Everyone has a number. Everyone yeah, knows. They have a QR code. Yep. Yeah. And you basically can either go to the supermarket or not. Yeah. And it's really difficult. So they're using poli- uh, political or accessibility to public, you know, works and public everything. Um, you either get vaccinated or you don't. I'm not sure. Like, I don't, I'm not sure that's the right answer, not the right answer, but um clearly the controversy around this vaccine is is way overblown in my eyes yeah. it's a very these are very safe vaccines we've had almost no significant allergic or bad reactions yeah well or like like birth control there are a lot of a lot of people get blood clots from taking birth mm-hmm. control then there was that issue with astrazeneca mm-hmm. so are women not going to take birth control because a couple people got blood clots i mean no <laughs> Correct. You know, right. I mean, it's, yeah. It's, yeah, of course. I think it's kind of a suitable analogy. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, it's, it, everything's a risk-benefit analysis. But right. to me, this is really, boy, I couldn't wait to get the vaccine. Oh, my God. Yeah. I was, like, practically elbowing people out of yeah. the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We've been talking a lot lately about buying wine not from the front label, but instead buying from the back label where the importer has their logo. The best way to experiment with new wines is to find a few importers that you trust and then trying wines they import that you may never have had before. It's a very foolproof way to expand your knowledge and your palate. One of our most trusted importers is Hootenanny Wines. This is a female-owned and operated import company specializing in natural wines from Europe with incredible names like Duetere, Iuli, Arndorfer, and Vino Diana. These are boutique and well-respected producers in the wine world who are farming organically and biodynamically and making wine in the most low-intervention way possible without sacrificing taste or integrity. They are the slow fashion of wine. <laughs> Look and ask for Hootenanny at your local wine shop and be prepared to be blown away by their selections. So I think we wanted to talk about nutrition a bit. Okay. And... um. Personally, vitamins for me are a big question and probiotics. I'm kind of of the school that more is more, but I don't think that's actually probably true. So I would love to know how you feel. I love it. You're like, I read about this. This is so good. I'm going to take it. And meanwhile, I just like asked Todd what I should take based on blood work. And then after a year or so, I stop. And he's like, why do you stop taking vitamin D? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> then I'm like, I'll start again. <laughs> it, it, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, I'm, a, I'm a pill popper. What yeah. can I say? <laughs> yeah, some, and some people are really uh, pill averse and yes. some people are not. And um, But I think that's another sort of side point. I mean, there are lots of ways to skin the cat, so to speak. I mean, um, you know, just uh, talking about B vitamins, which is actually really an essential uh, thing to take, and especially as we get older, we don't absorb them very well in our gut for lots of different reasons. But you know, there's like you can go and get a shot once a month if you want at your doctor. You can take a lozenge. You can take a pill. You can. I mean, there's a, a lot of ways to do it. Um, you can eat liver, for example. Right. You can just yes. gorge yourself on liver and have yeah, plenty not, of B vitamins. So yes. Salt. <laughs> <laughs> like Emily, goose I'm liver, come over and duck liver. <laughs> cook your liver once a month if you don't take your pills. Well, I think um, you know your question uh, is a good one, Liz. I mean, I think there are ways to uh, effectively utilize um, vitamins, supplements, minerals, and there are ways to not effectively utilize them. And I think just kind of going, you know, reading an article that says, oh, you you know, should be taking this or that probably is not the most sensible way. Um, What I like to do is actually measure blood levels of certain vitamins that uh, specifically are known to have poor absorption, especially Mm -hmm. in adults, and vitamins that are really important that I, you know, think we need um, based on a lot of science. But here are a couple examples of just popping pills and taking too, too much stuff maybe. Um, high dose vitamin C, for example, and a lot of people are really into vitamin C dosing around colds and especially around COVID, like COVID they were saying and colds, C and D. C and D yeah. Right? Yeah. Now, 
vitamin C is a water-soluble vitamin, and it is healthy. And I can go through, if you want, some of the data behind it in a little bit. But right now, you know, the thing that we're really talking about is can you get too much? And the answer is, yeah, you can. Because I always thought you just peed out what you don't need. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's not quite that simple. So like vitamin C, for example, um, it can interfere with your body's ability to um, absorb copper, which okay. is a, a crucial mineral. There's actually a disease uh, a process um, uh, that is a lack of this copper, and people have lose eye function and all sorts of other uh, uh, cellular function. Um, things like uh, really high dose can cause gastrointestinal upset too, right? You can take a ton and get diarrhea and GI upset, so then all of a sudden, whatever nutrients you are trying to take, you're pooping out so fast you can't absorb them. So that may not be a great plan either. Um, Other types of minerals and uh, vitamins have other effects on the body. Um, High phosphorus, the the bones are a balance between calcium and phosphorus, and that's what builds our bones. So too much phosphorus can cause calcium to leach out of the bones, and you can end up with osteopenia or weak bones. And then if there's too much calcium in your blood, it can cause problems like kidney stones, gallstones. Mm -hmm. It can even cause people who take high-dose calcium supplements, which a lot of women are told to do, can actually even... Even, uh, there are some studies now that say it can worsen coronary artery disease, calcium formation in the coronaries. So we're trying to get people to get their calcium sources from foods, not from, you know, 8 million milligrams of calcium supplements. Can I ask, I've always understood that vitamin C, though, does help you absorb iron in vegetables. So if you're, like, having spinach... It's good to have a vitamin C source in that same salad, or if you're cooking spinach, maybe you squeeze some lemon on it, and that helps you, especially as we go more and more to a vegetable-based sure. mm-hmm. diet, but I don't know if that's true. No, it, it is It is true um, to some extent. So yeah, within reason, I think, in other words... Uh, it's very difficult to prove that you need that extra vitamin C to absorb that iron. You're probably getting enough iron or, you know, that, again, that is something I measure in blood work. You okay. know, what is your uh, ferret and your iron storage and what are your iron sources? And um, if it's low, then we make a plan to fix that. But otherwise, I can really almost unequivocally say that the majority of people who are eating reasonable diets are getting enough of these vitamins and minerals and supplements. So if I go look at my blood work, because I Mm -hmm. have it all from my doctor online, anything that's in normal range... I don't have to stress about if if they're if it's all in normal range, I shouldn't have to be taking a multi every day. Uh, I can tell you, you definitely don't have to take a multi every day. Okay. There's literally no science behind that whatsoever. <laughs> I'm going to selfishly <laughs> use you right now and tell you what I'm taking. Okay. Tell me what you think. Okay. All right. Go I ahead. take a multi with high B. Okay. So the so, high B is really good. So maybe I should just take a B complex? A B complex okay. and make sure you're getting good enough absorption of the B12 because sometimes the B12 component doesn't get absorbed well in the gut. So that's what I say. You go to a shot or a lozenge. Oh, interesting. So B vitamins have been shown in some studies to benefit not only neurologic system, but cardiovascular system, decreasing the risk of stroke and heart attack in in some studies. They are water soluble. It's very difficult or almost impossible to overdose on them, but it doesn't mean you need a bottle a day. Sure. You just need to have adequate levels and that can be easily measured in your blood. All right. So in the summer, I don't take D. Because I'm outside so much. Okay. And I'm usually outside with some part of my body not that doesn't have sunscreen for a short period of time. Okay. So I'm sort of getting it there. Mm -hmm. Um, But in the winter, I mean, I'll take 10,000 IU Mm -hmm. a day. Is that too much? Again, it It depends on my... It depends on absorption. So no, uh, yes and no. In other words, um, it could be too much, but it also, I have many people who are on 10,000 or even 15,000. And sometimes I have to boost people's stores by putting them on 15,000 a day for a month and then back down. 
Okay. So, so I've had low D before. Yeah. So that's the answer. So, you have to measure the okay. vitamin D3 level. Okay. And then you have to have that number somewhere around 50 or above. So I guess that's the only other thing that it, when you asked the question before, as long as they're in normal range, is it okay? No, because the normal range for a lab may not be adequate. Got so it. even though the vitamin D level in a lab might go down to 20 or 30, most of our literature says we want to keep it closer to 50. I was really into Stephen Gundry for a long time and a lot mm -hmm. of his findings, and he talks about that, that like what is considered adequate D is actually not adequate in most people. So I think uh, lots, lot, uh, many labs are like that. Yeah. Um, uh, TSH, thyroid um, stimulating hormone, is like that. You know, huh. if I let people go up high as high as the range goes, uh, most of those people are subclinically at least or even clinically low thyroid. Okay. Yeah. So, so you have to be careful. You have to realize like when they create a range, it's everyone who comes in the lab, like from age eight to age 80. Right. And then they create a range. So my guess is you don't want a D level of an eight year old or a D level of an 80 year old necessarily. Right. right? So there's some specific uh, ranges. It needs to be narrowed down for uh, usually in your, for your lifestyle, for your age group, for your, your even health, health factors. Issues. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Got yeah. it. So what about, so the other things I, I take omega three every day. Good. Um, I take a blood builder cause I have low, well, it's in Chinese medicine, it's low yin. Um, so anyway, that's a side cause that's probably not <laughs> You're your over domain. my head. Yeah, that's it's <laughs> a different thing. I no. take holy basil, which I love. I take ashwagandha. Mm -hmm. I take a lot of stuff. And then, so let, but let's talk about, um, mm -hmm. probiotics. That's another thing I take almost every day. Okay. Probiotics are interesting because probiotics um, can be beneficial or not beneficial. Um, and let me go through some of the data, but probiotics in general have really been studied for quite a while. And here's the big hitch with probiotics. We really don't know exactly which probiotics or which patients to totally apply hmm this science too. There's no question <clears throat> that there's some studies that they don't do anything. And in fact, um, uh, they are, you know, incredibly popular um, dietary supplements and most people take them to try and recolonize the gut. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and just so you guys are clear, there are prebiotics and probiotics, right? So prebiotics are kind of like foods that the gut itself uses to create and, 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 and form its own flora, its own bacteria. Probiotics are already essentially fermented. That's like yogurt and kimchi and kefir and those sorts of things. So how do you get a prebiotic from diets? Um, a lot, their list you could google it but there's okay. all sorts of grains and like barley and all, okay. all sorts of it but usually it's uh, healthy um healthy uh, uh, grains and things that will be fermented they're fermentable you could make uh, you see what i mean yeah. and so probiotics are the foods that we ferment and then eat and prebiotics are things that your body can kind of go through e that process e exactly interesting so there's science sort of behind both of those things but there's really more science behind the probiotic stuff because the prebiotic stuff when you look at the list you're going to be like I should be eating that stuff anyway. Right. That's healthy, okay. you know, grains and legumes and 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 things that are low in simple carbohydrates and higher in complex carbohydrates, you know, minerals, vitamins, fiber, and those things. Um, the problem with some of the probiotics is so like why do people take them? Well, one common reason is people take them when they have diarrhea from antibiotics. So they take an antibiotic, they get diarrhea, they take probiotics. Well, there's actually studies both ways on that. Some studies show that it really can help decrease the risk of diarrhea. Other studies show it can actually complicate the diarrhea and make it worse. Mm -hmm. We don't really know. Um, we also don't know which, sub, which type of probiotic is best for that. Um, there's also um, uh, a data on the sort of other side of the coin where, um, if you do take, uh, probiotics, there's been this tie in and we're just not sure the tie in, but there's been tie in with dementia, and Alzheimer's, it's been tied in with cardiovascular disease. There's been tie in in, in, in a good way. In other words, people on probiotics have less risk of some of these things, irritable bowel syndrome, hypertension, dementia, um, it's supposed to boost the immune system, diarrhea associated with antibiotics sometimes helped and sometimes it's made worse. So it really, to me, has to be customized and individualized. So this is part of why 
walking into a, you know, a supplement store or whatever, a drug store that has, you know, all sorts of supplements, just picking stuff off the shelf because it's going to make you kind of feel good is probably a huge waste of money. Okay. Yeah. So the test for that is pooping in a jar and you, you analyze can, it? Well, I mean, you can is- do very specific tests with, with the probiotics. Um, there's, a, there's called a GI pathogen panels okay. and all sorts of uh, food testing panels. But the way to really do it more practically is to try it. So if you're one who gets, you know, diarrhea with antibiotics and you get like a recurrent urinary tract infection, the next time take probiotics with it and see if it's better or worse. And that usually tells the tale. And we unfortunately have no real good way to distinguish ahead of time. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. I give them to my son who's 13 because he has a reasonably good diet, but he's 13. I mean, he eats so much crap. It's like, so I feel like maybe less for me because I Sure. I mean, I'm not an angel, but <laughs> well, I this, eat this is reasonably well. Yeah, this is probably why the supplement industry it, every year increases by i don't know how many billions it's just of dollars upon right. people like me. well it's <laughs> it's it's taking advantage of you know everyone wants to feel good and be healthy sure. and everyone wants to give their kids the opportunity to feel good and be healthy you know but here, so let me just flip that argument and i'm sure this isn't your kid but a study just came out that Literally three quarters, 75% of most children in the age group you're discussing, diet comes from highly processed foods across the world. 75% of their calories come from highly processed foods. So we're a little, you know, skewed here in Boulder, of course, and, you know, but I mean, the honest answer is how can you, you know, giving those people probiotics isn't going to do diddly. We need to get them on reasonable, healthy, you know, dense food sources and other things. And by healthy, do you mean no carbs and no fat? No, (laughs) I don't. What an excellent segue, Emily. I I don't. I mean, good carbs and good fat. Ah. Yeah. So I think um, there... uh, you guys, um, and Emily, you had brought this up, but there's a concept called macronutrients, okay? Now, macronutrients are this new thing being thrown around, and there are now macronutrient coaches. And if you're one of those people, I'm not, I'm, I'm not disparaging you. I'm only mentioning that um, macronutrients are the building blocks, literally, of the foods we eat. So if you're eating a hamburger... Okay, it is made up of three macronutrients, protein, fat, and carbohydrate. Mm. Okay, and each of the macronutrients has a different calorie quantity. So let me use the numbers because you'll see how important it is to have good fats. So like a carbohydrate has four kilocalories per gram of energy. So just think of the number four. A fat gram has nine, more than twice the amount of energy Per gram. So it is super important to have good fats, but not saturated fats, not trans fats, right? Plant based fats, monounsaturated, polyunsaturated fats. Um, and that is essential to having a healthy body and, and, and having healthy cell production. Carbohydrates, what I'm talking about, Emily, is more like. I don't really want people eating simple carbohydrates. Simple carbohydrates mean that um, the carbohydrate chain only has a couple molecules. They get broken down really quickly. They're usually are um, real sweet things. They're sugar and honey and syrup and that kind of stuff. Um, complex carbohydrates are much longer chains of carbohydrates. It takes much more energy to break them down. They satiate you longer and they're more healthful for you because they generally contain a lot more uh, nutrients and other things in them. So um, you really just have to look at good carbohydrates, good fats, and lean protein sources. And protein is usually either plant-based where you don't have to worry about lean or not so much or animal based and then you're worrying about lean sources of protein versus not lean sources of protein like eat more fish and seafood don't eat burgers all the time yeah mm. <laughs> we'll see i was thinking about this conversation the other day because i saw a 
beautiful, very, very, very skinny woman order um, an omelet and then asked for it without cheese and also only egg whites and also only these vegetables. And I was like, what like what are you even absorbing at that point? Right. Like, what, like what's in like the vegetables? And the yolk sure, but, yeah. is where all the good stuff. <laughs> yeah. is. Well, so right. exactly. Well, that's a good point. So now yeah. she's probably pushing it a little too far because having egg whites versus the whole egg is really not that sensible. First of all, we know eggs are healthy. We also know they don't increase the risk of heart disease, and we also know that the most caloric, dense, and good fats are in the yolk itself. So that person would be happier, more satiated, and probably eat less calories throughout the day if they just had a regular omelet yeah now the cheese yeah i mean i'm one that doesn't eat a ton of cheese it's not generally that great for you but Mm -hmm. having some cheese with some wine or something is kind of a necessity at times (laughs) so it's not as if i would eat it in my omelets every day but i save that for other occasions and it's totally legit Mm -hmm. is it true that some cheeses are better than others for you or not really like i've always heard parmesan because it's drier is maybe not quite as yeah you're or, or sheep's milk or, or sheep's or goat. Yeah, yeah, goat, goat milk, sheep milk. So, um, so, so the one big thing is an absorption difference. Yeah, there's no question. There are people who can't eat uh, or, or don't tolerate from a gastrointestinal standpoint very well, like uh, you know, cow's milk cheeses and things like that, and especially some of the softer, more cream-based cheeses. That's why you're asking about harder cheeses like Parmesan and those things. So people can tolerate those better, and they tend to eat less quantity of those and there tends to be a less total fat. That's absolutely right. But if you take someone who's kind of lactose intolerant or something and you give them like I don't know. Uh, well, I think feta is supposed to be sheep milk anyway, but you give them feta or maybe you give them goat cheese as opposed to the, oftentimes they absorb that really well without any GI upset. Mm, so that's a little bit of an individual thing. But um, you're right. It's generally speaking, the softer the cheese, with some exceptions, the more uh, cream content and the, the, the more fat content. And you tend to eat more of it. Yeah. I, uh, there was something I read that also said like a goat is more, or a sheep is more our size. So if we got on all fours, <laughs> like a cow is much bigger. That- that so, seems like maybe just a, a random correlation. It's a very, it's a very <laughs> random correlation. I, uh, yeah, that I that would be in the dogma category. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, that one I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, I want to come back to something you'd said earlier about um, carbohydrates and what you know good starches are. Sure. Um, we so one of your dogma versus data points is are white potatoes healthy for you? This was the yeah. happiest part of the whole thing. Well, when, yeah, when it, for you. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Why well, do you say it that way? I just I like potatoes, but I, I like, love them. But I but I like I like potatoes that are fried or covered in salt or filled with Fair like enough. cream Me and too. butter. And I just like don't really eat like the healthy kind. I hear you. No, for me, it's if it's doused in olive oil or something. Yeah. yeah fair enough. No, I, yes. Yeah, so the, so the answer is with potatoes, it's funny because potatoes are picked on a lot, right? Mm-hmm. And if you guys really want, so when you, when you talk about carbohydrates, there's a concept called the glycemic index. Okay. And this is simply, if you eat a certain quantity of that carbohydrate, so you can compare a, a um, white potato to a sweet potato, to a yam, to a Snickers bar, whatever. And if you eat the same weight quantity of those things the glycemic index is a measurement of how fast it raises your blood sugar and the faster it raises your blood sugar the worse the carbohydrate is okay so when you look at comparatively carbohydrates okay and you look at something like a potato it actually raises your blood sugar less than like rice and rice cakes and all that other stuff that people eat yeah it raises your blood sugar um less than like bread um Mm. so it is actually a complex carbohydrate if people eat the skin it is filled with vitamins and minerals and fiber um and the more fiber you eat with any carbohydrate slows the absorption. So it turns a not as good carbohydrate into a better carbohydrate for, carbohydrate for you if you're eating it with more fiber. 
But again, you can't like, you know, fry, you can't, you know, do French fries. You can't just eat a bag of chips sure. and be you like, can't eat go me. chips and I just ate a potato. <laughs> no, so I mean, <laughs> right. Baked, boiled, you know, whatever. But um, it's, it's actually very healthy. It's complex carbohydrates, vitamins and minerals. Um, has good amount of potassium in it. It satiates people well. They tend not to eat a tremendous amount more calories after potato. It's pretty filling for people and lasts a while. So yeah, but white potatoes are on the list of goodness. I I knew this kind of wacky dude who told me that um, that he at one point went on a an all potato diet and that he only ate potatoes for every single meal and that he lost like twenty plus pounds. And all I could think was, what were you eating before? But now, well, that's but now, exactly it, right. but now yeah. it makes more sense. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, and if you're right, and I'm not sure that's really smart, right? He's, right. he's missing like a few a little, food groups there, yeah, but, yeah. um, it, it, I, you can lose. So this is, you know, something that we may or may, you know, discuss, but a lot of people are caught up in this calorie in calorie out kind of concept. Mm-hmm. And there's really a lot more to it, you know, like, um, yeah, it is absolutely true that I can send you to McDonald's with a specific caloric intake and have you eat that same thing every day. And if it's, you know, a really low caloric intake, I can probably get you to lose weight. Okay. It wouldn't be the best food. I could probably even do it with Snickers bars or French fries if worse comes to worse, (laughs) right? But I think the more important thing is that um, that that when people kind of uh, have a, a goal around, let's say, weight loss, what they really have to take into account is not just the calories, but the composition of the food. And, you know, because that affects the quantity and that affects how fast it's absorbed and that affects how your blood sugar spiked and that affects how your fat levels are. So you really have to look at a number of things. People with certain health problems may not uh, do well with like intermittent fasting, for example, which is a decent way to lose percent body. So it really depends. And again, it has to be individualized, but the general statement is you, you need to, you can't just worry about calorie, calorie. You have to worry about the composition, quantity of food, and you have to, you know, we're uh, taking into account your exercise patterns, your other health risks, et cetera. Yeah. Well, I think it's important to know, I mean, a, the genetic component of what everyone needs and what people's bodies are like and that and to make sure that there isn't like a moral piece associated with body weight right, right? that of it's course, yeah. like people yeah. should be eating things that are nutritious and paying attention to what they need right that's right yeah <laughs> which yeah. includes yeah. wine hopefully it, it does yeah, yeah there are excellent <laughs> studies behind it yes um, i said that to my son the other day because he was talking about feeling guilty for eating uh, a chocolate croissant or something. And I'm like, listen, when you have a chocolate croissant, enjoy every second of it. Right. Because that guilt is worse for you. Like, just enjoy sure. it. Just don't have them every day, you know? Right. So it, It's a moderation. Yeah, of course. That's why I made sort of that cheese analogy before. Right. I might be one to leave it out of my like omelet. The shaming but of yourself yeah, is I'm not healthy. Yeah, I'm not going to not eat it if there's good cheese and wine. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 So you spoke about macronutrients. Mm-hmm. What are micronutrients? And what <laughs> it, like what are the studies versus the facts there? So so micronutrients really are what we're talking about. Okay. They're really categorized as like the vitamins and minerals of the macronutrients, right? So if the macronutrients are essentially the three food groups, fat, carbohydrates, and protein, then let's say you have a carbohydrate source. And let's say it's a, I don't know, a baked potato mm-hmm. um, versus a different carbohydrate source, which might be um, a, a cabbage. Um, they have different micronutrients, right? right? Different vitamins and minerals and uh, um, even things called phytonutrients, mm-hmm. which are a little weird, but this conceptual thing that they're good for you. You know, it's so interesting, right? So this whole macronutrient thing came about. It's sort of funny, right? It, it all came about because the foods that they talk about macronutrients look really healthy. So they're like, okay, well, people who eat really healthy foods like fruits and vegetables and, you know, like a Mediterranean type diet with, you know, moderate amount of uh, wine and, you know, again, healthy carbohydrates and lean protein sources like fish. 
well, boy, those people are healthy. So they're going to figure out. So now there are people who are saying, well, it, it, it has more to do with the macronutrient ratio than just eating the healthy food. Mm. And that's really what I want to debunk. I mean, honestly, you need to eat the healthy food. The macronutrients will follow along. Okay. You, you can spend all day trying to calculate macronutrients and come up with different ratios of things. But to me, that would be a huge waste of time. There's no real science behind that at all. So in general, is it better to keep the skin on things? Like what about carrots and stuff like that? Better to just wash it well. Yes. And because I've always understood a lot of the micronutrients are in the the skin. And the insoluble fibers, which make it, which make it absorb less rapidly. So it's less glycemic. So it's a better carbohydrate for you. And, you know, it helps with, um, you know, bowel function. It helps decrease cholesterol. Um, So there, yeah, baked potato with the skin, you know, sweet potato with the skin, whatever. I mean, um, a yam is so fibrous that it has a lower glycemic index than a white potato and it's, and it's sweet, right? But there's so much fiber that you don't get that spike of sugar. So I think, yeah, in general, skin that's edible is probably a good idea. And then you also touched upon intermittent fasting. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first time we talked with you, and we'll link that um, that recording below. Okay. But so it sounds like you maybe recommend it, maybe not, depending on someone's yeah current you know particular situation. In general, for most people that are reasonably healthy, what would you say is a good amount of time that one should leave between dinner? And breakfast the next mm-hmm. day. Yeah. Well, it's a it's a good question because I, I do say so there, there are more and more studies that have come out regarding intermittent fasting. It does appear to be not only beneficial for uh, weight loss, percent body fat loss, but um, there are some other important pieces that have to do with people like with pre-diabetes, it's, it's helping control blood sugars and insulin levels also, because you're giving your body such a long break where your pancreas doesn't have to crank out insulin all day. So, um, so there, so first of all, it is a valid thing to do. Second of all, it doesn't work for everyone. It just doesn't. I have patients that try it diligently and it's just for whatever reason, and we're not sure, they don't seem to be much different than if they eat spread out other ways, you know, different timing. Um, The third piece is um, that uh, it can really be done at any time of the day that you're comfortable. So the goal is to have your food consumption within about six to eight hours at the most, And then about, you know, uh, 16 hours off of no food. So you're obviously allowed to have liquids, but you can't have liquids that have any calorie source. So you can have black coffee, you can have, you know, uh, water, whatever, um, sparkling water, whatever you want, but you shouldn't be having calorie sources because that starts your pancreas working again. So could you have coffee with some oat milk, for example? No. Nada. No, but you could have coffee. Okay. Yeah, black mm. coffee, black tea, yep. green tea. Yep. No sugar, no milk, nothing. Yep. So I'm not really intermittent fasting. <laughs> I thought I was. You're almost intermittent I'm fasting. Almost. Yeah, you're right on uh, the edge. Yeah. Oh, the black coffee, uh, though. But, but see, but, and that's a good point because some people would rather not. So the common thing I should say is that people fast um, it, it, like later in the day. It's, it seems to be a common thing where people skip breakfast, start eating maybe at noon or one o'clock and, you know, go from there. Um, it's totally valid to eat first thing in the morning when you wake up and have coffee with oat milk and whatever you want and just do your six hours that. But then, you know, you can't have wine at 7 p.m. or 6 p.m. Right. So it, it's really a life style thing. I have people doing it both ways. And it really doesn't matter if you do it in the morning or in the evening. I mean, there's so much about like, is it okay to eat right before you go to bed? Well, yeah. So that, that it's a, it's a great, it's a, it's a great point because that is an issue. You know, you don't want to like consume a ton of calories before you go to bed. But having said that, usually people are, you know, kind of doing it between like one and six o'clock or one and seven o'clock PM or something like that. And and that's totally fine. Usually people are ending around a normal dinner time. Mm -hmm. Um, But no, you should not do it um, until you, you know, have your last meal and then go lay down. Okay for the whole night. 
the and the other the other thing is so you you do raise a good point so they they are looking at that and there may be some benefit to shifting it in the morning because you then are burning um, uh, theoretically burning more calories or not having food right before you lay down it's pretty controversial and I tell my patients they can do it whenever they are comfortable doing it you'll keep us posted on the data as that comes yes, out yes I will <laughs> absolutely. I have one more question sure. about sleep aids. Aha. Uh-huh. Because Emily and I both have trouble sleeping. Okay. So I used to take Ambien, things like that. I don't take those anymore. I understand the risks with those, especially with memory and right. you know, addictiveness mm-hmm. and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not true. Sometimes I take half an Ambien, but yeah, very rarely. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, or when I'm traveling. But sure. I have gotten on to Trazodone. Mm-hmm. which I like. So mm-hmm. here's my question. Is it better for me to not take something and sleep less or take a trazodone five nights a week and have nine hours of sleep instead of seven? Mm-hmm. It's a good question. Um, so in my book, it's better the latter. It's better for you to take something that's safe and sleep because sleep is hugely important for lots of different things. Yes. Like you just mentioned, you know, if, you're, if you're really that worried about taking half an Ambien once in a while for dementia, try not sleeping for 10 years. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. you, you've just defeated that purpose, you right. know. Right. Uh, trazodone, I, I like trazodone as a sleeping aid. It's a very safe med. It boosts serotonin a little bit. It generally makes people sometimes a little happy a little less, you know, kind of depressed stuff. And um, it's uh, non-addicting. You can go off it. You can go on. You can use it when you want. I think it is a very safe and excellent choice. And I'd much, if I were your doctor, I'd much rather have you getting consistent sleep. Okay. Thank you. I need Especially that as an adult. No, I mean, adults don't sleep well. I mean, you know, it's, uh, it, and um, there are an awful lot of diseases associated with it, chronic diseases. Yeah. Add to it a cat waking you up. and Oh, my God. Last night was the worst. <laughs> I was up every 20 minutes all of last night. Oh. Yeah. I was like, I... <laughs> I kept reviewing all my slides. No, was... <laughs> <laughs> oh, the stress. <laughs> uh, this has been um, so interesting and wonderful. Fun also. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry I kind of monopolized the conversation, but Emily gets to talk to you all the time. Right? <laughs> I, well, yeah, you, I had to like really um, take advantage. While yeah. I you've could. been, you've been excited for these questions. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Well, I hope, I hope it was helpful. Um, I'm more than happy to do it again or do more. And, um, you know, there's lots of stuff that mm, we can cover in the future. And are there resources that we can link to, whether they're on your website or things that you just especially like? Yeah, actually, what I was going to do, I put together um, just kind of a slide deck of a bunch of sort of dogma versus data pieces, you know, um, and I kind of address some issues with nutrition and supplements and minerals and diets and different things. So I'm going to put that PowerPoint up on my website. Great. Um, you guys are welcome, obviously, to have it on your website or link to it or do whatever you want. But um, the in that within that PowerPoint are um, uh, different articles I mentioned and different things that I quote. But I think if people read this, it'd be a really kind of good start to say, hey, maybe I can tweak a couple things with my supplements or nutrition to be a little more healthful. I would say in general, people are probably spending a lot more money on supplements than they should. Yeah. Yeah. Clearly. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, Well, thank you so much. It was wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you guys for asking me back. I really appreciate it. Yeah. It's fun. Um, And to everyone who listened, thank you so much for tuning in. Please head over to our website, finelinepodcast.com, where you can find our episodes, places to donate and support the podcast, and other resources. Thanks a lot. This is Kathy Hoya from A Balanced Glass, a community and platform that's dedicated to overall wellness when wine is at the center of our work. We're glad to tack on a few thoughts about mindfulness to wrap up the Fine Line podcast, inspired by each week's guests and conversation. Here's what I appreciate very much about Liz, Emily, and the Fine Line podcast. They ask the questions that you or I would ask in the course of a normal, everyday conversation. I love this. It sounds simple, but I love this because they do that even when their guests is a specialist in their field with very sophisticated knowledge about their area of expertise. 
That's how it was this week with Dr. Todd Dorfman. As you just heard, Liz and Emily interview him on the questions of COVID, vaccinations, and nutrition. I was inspired this week not only by the content of the podcast, but also by the expression of the content. In other words, it wasn't just the what of Emily, Liz, and Todd's conversation. It was also about how they expressed that conversation. It got me to thinking about mindful conversation and how this week's podcast shows us how to do it. Let's consider first how we engage in conversation as a listener, and then we'll look at how we engage in conversation as the speaker. You've probably heard someone describe real or authentic listening as more than just waiting for your turn to speak. This is a fantastic place to start as we consider mindful two-way or even three-way conversation. I've noticed that mindful listeners are slow listeners, meaning that they take their time to respond. They don't jump in with a prepackaged response that they're just bursting to say, and they don't interrupt or butt in before their counterparts in the conversation have finished expressing their own thoughts. Mindful listeners in a conversation slow the pace of the exchange. They give themselves time to consider their reaction before they speak their response. In doing so, they're probably opening the door to fresh and creative thoughts to offer in exchange, like a gift. Fresh and creative thoughts are, as we all know, the most delicious fuel to the fire of a lively, memorable, thought-provoking conversation. Which brings me to the speaker in the conversation who, like Todd in this week's podcast, was invited as a domain expert in his field with specific things to say. I think that mindful speakers in a conversation also slow the pace, just like mindful listeners. That doesn't mean that mindful speakers speak slowly. It just means that they speak deliberately and thoughtfully, which you'll notice seems to take more time. Mindful speakers savor their words and their thoughts. They value the way that they express those thoughts without carelessly tossing words into the space between people, the way that debris is sometimes carelessly tossed into the street between buildings. We know when we're in a neighborhood that cares about their space. We also know when we're in a conversation that cares about mindful listening and mindful speaking. I love the way that slowing the pace is a really good indicator of mindful conversation. I'm grateful to the Fine Line podcast hosts and guests for demonstrating how we can do more of that. Thank you for listening. Mindfully so.